This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, good morning. Um, we've got a big show coming up for you. I'm not alone in the studio. I'm here with Dr Sharma. Good morning. Good morning. I'm here with Hawkeye. Good morning. Good morning. And good morning to you, Perry Pardum. G'day. And I'm Panel Bearer. I don't think I mentioned that. Good to see you guys. Everyone well? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, really, you know, what, what could be wrong? You know, what the, world, could, the world is perfect. <laughs> the world it? is perfect. Yeah, yeah. There's been no drama whatsoever. We don't really need to be here. We don't, no, it's fine. don't need to be here because Nothing the... To discuss. No problems to solve. That's it. No patients lining up. I it's, heard... Um, nah, nothing. Just by way of the state of the world, I heard somebody describe um, Trump's current performance as gaslighting the United States. Sorry, who? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> gaslighting the United States. But let's not get distracted by him. Let's come back for some news in just a moment. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. No pills gonna kill my ill. I got a bad case of loving you. Okay, guys, speaking of news... Dr. Sharma, I think you've got something uh, on your mind. That's right. Um, I was caught by surprise because today is the end of uh, International Antibiotic uh, Awareness Week. So if you were unaware of that, do take a moment to absorb the irony, uh, as, as I had to. You can be unaware of it now for another 51 weeks, is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's pretty much right. right. Yeah, so the, whatever we've got left of Sunday and that's that. Uh, it caught me by surprise because I'm pretty passionate about the topic and I only found out pretty late uh, in the week. So the aim of Antibiotic Awareness Week is really to, rare, uh, to raise awareness of the deeper concept of this thing called antimicrobial resistance. And that's the phenomenon where the bugs become stronger than the drugs we make to kill them. And it's the mechanism behind which superbugs uh, come about, which we hear about in the headlines uh, every, every few months, it seems. And the main cause is overuse in either healthcare or in agriculture farming. And the thing is, it's really difficult to come up with new antibiotics to kill these bugs that keep getting stronger and stronger. So the emphasis is on stopping uh, the overuse. So I had a look into it um, uh, last night. There were some really interesting statistics. We use a lot of antibiotics in Australia. The latest figures show that, I think it was in 2014, roughly half of all Australians took some kind of antibiotic. Uh, go, go on. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, some of us take antibiotics because we take a pill when we've um, been given a prescription from the doctor, but some of us ingest them through, I don't know, eating chicken. True. <laughs> I mean, the biggest overuse, I think, of antibiotics and the biggest cause of multi-resistance is actually, you know, mass prescribing of antibiotics in the settings of, you know, chicken and pork farming in intensive settings, right? Well, yeah, on a global scale, that's actually right. In fact, most of antibiotics that are used are, is probably in agriculture. In Australia, we're actually much better than a lot of countries uh, when it comes to that. Um, but uh, what you said actually resulted in some fairly unprecedented action. There were the, uh, in UK, the some of the leaders from the colleges of physicians, surgeons and public health uh, wrote to the health ministries demanding like a, a ban on these prophylactic or preventative antibiotics because we quite often see this scenario of perhaps one animal in a lot getting sick and all the animals hence getting antibiotics even if there's no evidence uh that that uh that illness is bacterial which means if you're treating viruses with bacteria i mean you're already you know you've already kind of screwed up there and giving the whole lot of antibiotics this is exactly how a lot of bugs come about things like mrsa uh methicillin resistant staph aureus uh, those kind of super bugs so to speak mm-hmm. um have uh, come about and it, from uh, abuse in agriculture a lot of the time but your focus is more on prescribing for humans, right? That's right. Well, there needs to be a co- coordinated approach. And in Australia, th- that's where we fall behind as well. It's estimated roughly two in five prescriptions of antibiotics are probably uh, either unneeded or not in accordance with guidelines. Um, and a lot of the time that is driven by fear of some kind of catastrophic outcome where we all have that bias, we don't want something nasty to happen. But a lot of the time it's to keep up with expectations as well uh, by patients. Uh, a recent survey showed that 60% of Australian GPs that said they would inappropriately prescribe antibiotics in order to satisfy patients' expectations. Certainly, uh, so in surveys of patient satisfaction, antibiotic prescription is actually the most consistent predictor of patient satisfaction that is patients are satisfied with something that 
that empirically we know harms them. And that's across multiple, multiple studies. It's a, you know, there's this very real sense that if you go to the doctor with something that is clearly an infection, I mean, we all recognise when we have minor respiratory tract infections, we feel like rubbish. We've got snot pouring out our nose. We've got a sore throat. We know we have an infection. We know that a generation ago, this was absolutely an indication for antibiotics. Everyone expected to get antibiotics. And to have to go to, to go to the doctor and have the doctor say, look, you know, this just isn't in your best interests and make a really good case for it, people just don't want to hear it. And it's certainly it's also not a case that really works in a five minute kind of grab. Correct. Um, this is like climate change, you know, there's there's lots of evidence on you know in one in one area. There are a series. There's a suite of potential interventions across whether it's agriculture, clinical medicine, you know, across the board, and we're just not embracing big systematic kind of big systemic interventions. What we're doing is this kind of nudge policy, and it's not really you know it's working in some ways, but certainly n- not in the big ways that we need to turn this thing around. And it's a really good analogy with climate change because. It- in both these cases, uh, the harm is actually being incurred by our future self. So there's often this idea of, well, it's not going to harm me if I take it as a one-off. Yeah, but there's this still this negative externality, which is not suffered by the doctors, maybe not so much by the patients either, but by future you yeah. uh, or future generations, and uh, which which explains, I think, a lot of the inertia behind uh, some serious changes needed here. What's going to trigger the change? Well, what? What do we need a catastrophe? Do we need for a uh, for something that we've relied on to actually not work anymore? Before the thing is, it's it's already happening, and I think uh, a lot of people have a lot of faith in technology solving this issue that we're going to somehow come up with a fix to this, um, and. All the evidence is to the contrary. Every few years, you come up with some amazing mechanism that's, uh, uh, or a new novel antibiotic that gets developed, which is actually incredibly rare. And people have just undue faith that technology is going to deliver us from this uh, evil. When it really, it comes down to it being a social problem, not necessarily one that's going to be solved in a petri dish in a microscope, but in on fact, a social level. In fact, the most effective uh, interventions have largely been the most primitive, if you like, and that's uh, things like washing your hands in hospitals. Um, so infection control as a mechanism of controlling the spread of multidrug resistant bacteria, you know, is, is probably the best we've got, mm. and it's pretty good. Yeah. You know, it's not. It's it's primitive. It's pretty good, and uh, and uh, it'd be good if we could do it more consistently. It's remarkable how, you know, uh, it's not as simple as it sounds to get everyone in a hospital to wash their hands. And Australia's made a really great effort at getting it done, and it's still not good enough. And the fact that we can't get it done speaks to something going on that's that's bigger than just a whole bunch of people not caring, because that's not what's that's not what's happening. I, from where I sit, you know, it, it's. I often think the question's not, you know, why do these outbreaks happen from time to time? The question is, why don't they happen more? Like, given how lax... Is that a good word for this situation? How lax we are with things? Yeah, so I think one way of thinking about that is that, that uh, so infectious diseases medicine is, is nothing if not applied evolution. <laughs> and uh, and these, uh, these so-called superbugs are, to, to some extent, um, kind of sickly mutants often... Often they're actually not as good as the original. Um, they might be resistant to some bacteria, but they're not as good at all the other stuff that they that they do at actually causing sickness and disease. And uh, and so when you put them back in the wild, when you take the pressure of antibiotics away from the situation, things tend to actually revert to that more antibiotic susceptible type uh, because those bacteria are fitter. It, it, it makes perfect sense. We might even be able to turn that into a segment one day. Um, but time is pacing away. It is. So I'm going to take over there yeah, and talk about the go. next bit of news, which I also one day would like to turn into a segment because this is kind of controversial and important. So mm. it's with regard to ECT, which is electroconvulsive therapy, which is a treatment for severe depression and psychosis, which is usually only administered in a hospital setting. So... The news in relation to this treatment is that the Supreme Court in Victoria has just handed down two very consequential decisions for people living with mental illness in regard to the use of ECT. I have tried out to find out how I could do justice to this issue in like, you know, three and a half <laughs> minutes, but I don't think I can. Um, but Give I, us a definition first of all, ECT. Okay. Yep. So electroconvulsive therapy is a treatment whereby people are provided with an electrical current which stimulates a seizure. Um, they're asleep when that happens, so they're given a general anaesthetic and the seizure itself lasts for about 
between 10 and 30 seconds. It's usually administered three times a week um, for treatment and once a week for maintenance. And it's a treatment that's been around since the bad old days in psychiatry, which is probably the 1940s, the 1950s, which is where a lot of the stigma, I think, arises from. So movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which famously um, provided the early stigma for treatments for ECT, are still a touchstone and a reference point for people who are facing treatment um, for mental illness in the modern day. So um, what I would say is that about this particular decision, um, both of these decisions are online, so anyone who's interested should go and have a look at them. Um, My hot take is that... This will further restrict the access of people in public hospitals to a treatment which remains the most effective treatment for severe depression with melancholic features that we have. So depression with melancholic features occurs when people um, find it really hard to continue to eat or drink or sleep or think or talk. Um, and when they're suffering from such severe depression that really they're unable to, to function in any meaningful way. So I think... Um, To to contextualise this, it's important to keep in mind the difference between the use of ECT in public hospitals, which is governed very closely by legislation and court decisions, such as the ones that just made, and in the private setting. And what I find really striking is that ECT is very widely used in private hospitals. Um, And similarly to TMS, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is another treatment which I'd love to talk about in a lot more detail. So TMS is a bit like ACT, except they use a magnet and not an electrical current to stimulate brain activity. Um, And in my practice, which is with women who are pregnant in the postpartum, a lot of pregnant women would, or breastfeeding women, would prefer TMS, for example, to medication treatment for depression because they don't want to take medication which could affect their baby either in utero or through breastfeeding. Um, And similarly, many people try TMS even if they aren't pregnant because it doesn't have the side effects that medications have, like weight gain or sedation. And I would also say... Outside psychiatry, um, more generally, the stigma against brain stimulation through electricity rather than medication um, is not present. So people with Parkinson's disease are increasingly having stimulators implanted actually in their brains to help them move about, and those interventions are really life-changing. So I think I would really like to... um, think more about the science and the evidence in how best to help people and I, I feel that it's it's really just a lot of stigma which prevents mm. people from considering all the available options for treatment of mental illness. So, But the news is the Supreme Court decision. That's true. And? <laughs> so I don't have time to discuss it. Can I put it on notice for a discussion in a month's time? Oh, we've, we've got people on ten hooks now. To tell us what <laughs> the Supreme Court... They're going to tune in next, what's next the news? month. What did the Supreme Court determine? So really the Supreme Court, I think, um, is trying to make sure, um, and, and I think this is important, that people have um, the opportunity to make their own decisions with regard to mental health care. So if, if someone is an involuntary patient under the Mental Health Act in hospital, then they should still be able to make decisions about... Um, Uh, Decisions whether or not they would accept, say, a treatment like ECT as opposed to a treatment like medication. Um, And I I think that's really important, but I think it obscures the broader picture, which is that ECT is just another treatment. Um, And and like all treatments, it has side effects and risks. Uh, But I I really think that uh, rather than very carefully controlling and restricting access to this specific treatment, what we should really be doing is trying to provide as much information about the pros and cons of all available options to people who have to make these decisions decisions in a very stressful moment in their lives. Three Triple R. Hello everybody. I feel very, very fortunate today to be welcoming one of Australia's best love writers, Cass Cook, to the studio. I feel an introduction is kind of redundant, but for anyone who has lived under a rock in the last 30 years or so, Kaz is a journalist, cartoonist and fabulous writer of many books which have transformed the lives of women at particularly stressful points, including adolescence, negotiating young adulthood, pregnancy and raising babies and toddlers. She has written a lot of books and articles which manage to provide a really clear, sensible and feminist perspective on issues that can be very difficult to think through in the moment and which are also really very funny. The thing that makes Kaz's writing stand out to me amongst other books written on the same issues is that she manages to write like she's standing there in the room with you as you scrape poo off the wall or vomit (laughs) from the couch and she can help you laugh at the experience and at yourself. Kaz is here to talk about her book Babies and Toddlers which is coming out soon through Penguin Random House. Hello Kaz. Hello, it's tomorrow. It's so exciting. That's very soon. Yes, (laughs) it's the sequel to Up the Duff I'm calling it. (laughs) Well, it's the logical sequel. Yeah. 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 Um, And it's a new edition of um, a couple of books slightly differently named which you've written... 
for a long a long time ago now. It's kind of it's it's kid wrangling was the original sequel to Up the Duff and um, people do not search for the word kid wrangling online. <laughs> is that the reason so they changed the name? Ki- pretty much, kid huh. wrangling is dead huh. and long live babies and toddlers. It's kind of like a sixteen year old book that I spent two years doing. I updated it every year, mm. but then I spent two years with more than thirty medical and other experts updating this. So I everything see. from emergency medicine to you know post baby body emotional issues um you know crying sleeping the whole box and dice absolutely well that that explains to me why because i read kid wrangling maybe what 15 years ago that's when it first came out out, yeah yeah and i know that it lived on lots of my friends bedside tables for many years yes it's now kindling (laughs) so if people could or perhaps you have a window that needs propping up (laughs) well that's why i thought that i kind of had already read it when i read it again in preparation for this interview but i haven't no it is really different and there's so many changes Mm. you know with uh from allergies and when and what to feed babies um and also that uh and even sun care for babies you know so many people every summer post on facebook that their baby's got sunburn so there must be something wrong with the the sun lotion Mm. and in fact they're just they just don't know how to apply it properly so it's it's you know i mean that's kind of what the book's about we working with the editor and the designer our motto was always it's three o'clock in the morning you know, the parent is exhausted, the baby is crying, they don't know what's wrong. Is it hospital time or is it let's just all try and get back to sleep time? Um, so it had to be practical. So I've even got a ruler of how long the brim on a baby's sun hat has to be. You do get very specific. So there's one... Yeah, because that's what people need. You're so tired. And yet when you're a parent, even if it's not the first six weeks, you know, at any stage of babyhood and then the, the toddler years... and. I really resent this idea that women have to have a magical instinct and that men don't have it. You know, parenting is a learned thing. Your instincts come from knowing your own kid and knowing some facts about, um, you know, medical needs. Um, And you cannot be an expert on everything. And I don't write from the point of view of a guru expert. I write from the point of view of, oh, my God, what do I need to know, which was pretty much what my parenting experience was. And as a journalist, you learn that you can go to the tip-top Experts, you know, at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, or a lot of GPs were inc- who were at that coalface were incredibly helpful. Um, so, yeah, that as a journalist, you learn that you can just ring people up and go, "Hello, can you help me?" And it is amazing and humbling, and it makes me emotional how incredibly generous, very good medical people are with their time because they know this information is going to get to parents. Kaz, I wonder, you're talking about being in touch with the medical profession so closely and and obviously it's a a crucial requirement for this topic. Did you come across much contradictory information as you started talking amongst the the profession? It's a really good question. I tend not to include anything in a book until it becomes pretty much public health recommendation. Like I see studies all the time. You see them all the time at the moment. The new fad is everyone should be taking a probiotic, whether they're pregnant or breastfeeding and I don't think we're there yet to give that information to everybody I think probiotics aren't necessarily good for everybody we don't know exactly the dose of which kind of probiotic that might be helpful we'll probably get there but so that kind of contradiction I'm very wary of you know a study of 11 people in Finland or you know even even a, a good study it just seems to me that it's almost always reported as, OK, time to change your behaviour. And it just ve- it very rarely is um, and t- until we kind of get there. And the other thing was I actually... Um, the, the publishers, as well as me going to more than 30 experts and then a whole lot of actual parents as well, but um, they had a GP look at the book and um, the GP... I don't know who that was. Um, the GP recommended changes to my section on when a baby or a toddler is choking and I actually pushed back because their choice of words I thought was just not helpful to someone who was basically in a panic and it was stuff like if the child has an unproductive cough then do like parents just don't know what that is and I actually asked and it was basically if the thing they've that's stuck in their throat isn't coming up then you do this so I just change sometimes I just change mm. the wording um and I try not to... I mean, there are, there are a few things that 
I will weigh in on. Like, I reckon immunisation is really important and there are reasons why and they're in the book. But the but a lot of things are presented, like, as a buffet. So if you come to parenting with a attachment parenting philosophy or... Um, or, or you want to try controlled comforting or controlled crying or whatever you want to call it, that it's there for you to choose from. And I reckon quite often parents don't want to publicly ask a question, even in a even though the internet has brought a lot of people together in forums. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of what I reckon bullshit information in there. And there's also... Uh, c- can be a stigma to even ask a question. Um, What's the source of that stigma? Is it because because you're a mum, you're expected to know anyway? Yeah, I think and there's a bit just of asking that. asking the question is a sense of... It's also if phone. all the people in your family or your group are saying... You, you know, you don't immunise or, you know, you must do the, you must do this with your kids. It can be really hard to be the one that goes against the grain. And I think having a book... It's a really big book that you can't li- read as a novel or your head will explode, but it, the information's all there to look up in the index so that you can kind of do that in private. Um, and, I, and I also say to people, here are the trusted sources to go to, like your GP and these particular websites, because, oh, my God, some of the stuff I read on websites is terrifying. Uh, thanks a lot. Um, so I, I just finished reading the immunisation chapter earlier. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was wonderful. I think it's, um, it's oh, not... thanks. Uh, it's not exaggerating things to say that uh, that, that chapter will save lives, um, and I think much in the same way as uh, as an earlier uh, public, an earlier uh, book of yours, the kind of uh, Modern Girl's Guide to Safe Sex, uh, published in the eighties. Published a year after the Grim Reaper ad. Yes. So, oh, uh, that's so right. you know, uh, as much as that uh, that book likely saved lives, um, I wonder whether or not the MCRI and other uh, experts who contributed uh, to the book have had a chance to read back over the book because kind of oh as, they do as, that before yeah. it comes out yeah no no I, I wasn't talking about fact checking I was talking about learning um, oh. because as a <laughs> as a uh, so as someone who you know uh, as a pediatrician and MCRI MCRI researcher. That's the Murdoch Children's Institute for those of you who aren't in the know. Yeah, see, we've already got an example of uh, of, uh, a a so-called expert being taught how to speak plain language (laughs) by by Kaz Cook. And and I think that's that's the message I I wanted to get at, that I think, um, you know, that for training young doctors it's actually a, a good resource of not so much the the textbook knowledge because that's in a medical textbook but actually the the plain language uh, that that will actually mean something for parents yeah i've learned a lot from doctors who are at the coalface and particularly i'm actually at the moment researching the 20th anniversary of up the duff edition <sighs> which is going to come out next year that's how i know my kid is 20 still up the duff <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, and talking to experts at uh, the Victorian um, Clinical Genetic Services and, uh, and, and the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the Children's Hospital, they teach me wording, and sometimes it's quite surprising. Like, I think I've been really sensitive. <laughs> and then they go, if you say most women do that, so that's one word in a 500-page book. If you say most women do that we've found that other women feel they can't make the other decision. So if you just say many women make that choice, then actually... it. And I had not thought about that. But I respect that because I think it's important to talk to people who are speaking to patients and hearing what what women and, and dads are, are saying and wanting to know. The other thing that um, I was struck by when I was reading the book was not just that there is a lot of very um, obviously well-researched and factual information, and yet it's also contributed to by lots of women who provide their own little anecdotes which make you laugh or illuminate a moment. And, uh, and I think that really is very important because for a lot of these women who are at three in the morning confronted with a situation that they can't really cope with, a bit of humour is such a saving grace and it makes you feel as though you're not completely alone in this experience that you've got a lot of other people who've been through it and survived it as have their children and I think that that actually makes this really valuable book there are lots and lots of books on the experience of parenting and and how to be a a parent and and how to safely raise a baby but there aren't heaps of books that can marry that with the degree of humanity that you've managed to achieve in this book. I get very bored unless I can laugh occasionally. So, <laughs> and also that's why it is written in that really friendly style. 
um, because I kind of wish that I'd had that when I was pregnant and when my, my baby was little. Right at the outset, I think in your introduction, you say that the aim of the book is, I might be paraphrasing, but it was effectively to... Oh, could, could you just remember it verbatim? <laughs> How rude. It was something like stop worrying and start enjoying being a parent or something of that. Yeah, that. yeah. Look, and I think that's another thing that's changed. I think we uh, used to, we started to understand that there was this thing that we called PND, which was postnatal depression. And only very recently we've understood that part of that mental health issue is actually about anxiety for many women um, and for dads too. And I just think this generation of dads too, largely, is fantastic and they often didn't have good role models themselves. Their own dads didn't really know how to be involved. So men are kind of doing it without, you know, a, a GPS to guide them. And so I wanted to talk to them as well because I think they can sometimes be left out or think that they're not important um, with kids of, of any age, really. Um, and I think the more that both partners, whether male or female, wh- you know, whatever kind of family you're in, and I kind of think sexuality is irrelevant, um, it's about what kind of parent that, that you can be, the more that people can share and understand what the other one's going through, whether it's being at work and getting home late and, you know, feeling... I can remember my partner... Um, I'd been at home alone with the baby all day and he drove home and parked outside to have a moment between work and home to listen to the radio and I just flew out and said, what are you doing? Go inside and help me. Help me. Um, But now I kind of get that. So now my advice to dads is park around the corner (laughs) for 10 minutes to to get that little buffer zone. Hey, Kaz, we're just going to take a quick break. Um, You're listening to Radiotherapy with our special guest, Kaz Cook, talking about her book, uh, Babies and Toddlers. Uh, You're with Perry Pardum, Dr Sharma, Hawkeye and Panel Beater. We'll be back in just a moment. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. So, Kaz, um, the bits of the book, obviously, that I paid the most attention to being a psychiatrist and looking after women who are pregnant or who have young babies were the bits that relate to mental health. And I felt that you used the same principles that you used when you talked about poo and crying um, (laughs) that you did with mental health, which was fantastic. So you were very clear. Well, those two things can cause the mental health problem, the poo and the crying. To be quite honest... The bits that I liked the most were the sections about poo and the sections about crying and the sections about sleep because, to yeah. be honest, when I have anxious patients, they come to me and they talk a lot about poo and crying and sleep, yeah. a lot more than I'm comfortable with because that's not my area of expertise. But now <laughs> I can refer them to a compendium where they can think about it in a bit more detail. I, I think it's probably one of the few medical books where you, you could look up poo, comma, green in the index. Mm. And poo, <laughs> comma, explosive yes. is also there as well, which is great. <laughs> oh, you've done your research. So I thought um, the major um, emotion that I experienced when I read your bits on uh, postnatal depression and anxiety and psychosis in particular was relief because finally someone is talking about this in a really clear and plain and normal way like you would speak to someone who was experiencing it, who was a friend of yours. Uh, And I think that is a huge step forward because I very rarely find that things are well written or sensitively discussed um, in a way in using language that people can easily understand. So I'm very grateful for that actually. Oh thank you. Yeah and I think that it's really important to destigmatize things like postnatal depression and anxiety which are so common. So common. I mean I would go so far as to say I, you know I really think that at some level there's a spectrum of it but almost everybody um, at least has a shock and a grief of their, their previous life going and then there's the rest of perhaps feeling blank or feeling anxious and, and you know, being worried that if you tell someone they'll think you're a bad mother or they'll take the baby away. Or, and that's why I go through and explain it. Even if you have postnatal psychosis and lose touch with reality, the aim of your treatment and management is that you will be with your baby and you will feel okay about that. That's right. And you also name things. Like you've got a section that says feeling angry <laughs> yeah. and women are actually allowed to feel angry you need to control the emotion um, and you can't do anything destructive and you, with it, but, but you also need to know something practical to do yeah. if you're feeling angry at your baby yes because i, I just hate those books and uh, advice of people which is like stop doing that <laughs> that's, a, like, that's well, the wrong thing <laughs> what else do i do what do i do when i'm and you are kind of i think you can feel quite out of control and you also feel very vulnerable and I think that's something that all doctors need to understand is that when they 
when a parent comes to them, and you clearly do understand this, that parent is coming from a position of great vulnerability. They don't know the answer to something really important that might, that's about their whole life. Um, and I think sometimes doctors, are, you know, do what they do all day long. Um, and the really good ones remember that every patient and every baby is coming from their really difficult world and then interfacing with this other... Oh, I've just used the word interfacing. <laughs> God, stop me, somebody. In the swedger. Good God. <laughs> um, and also, look, there was, in my extended family, um, there has been... Um, post-birth psychosis and at that time when that happened it was the generation before mine and it was so stigmatized um and even though it's rare it's really good for people to to look out for Mm. and also I just I I also think I do this in my books girl stuff for adolescent girls I think it's really important to know if you've got depression or anxiety or a mental health problem in your family um I think that gives you an advantage because it helps you to look out. It helps you to have an insight and understand what might be happening and reach out for help early and understand that it's something that you can manage and, and get control of. Yes. So the, the last thing I really want to comment on in regard to your book is also another thing which I thought was quite unusual um, in that you often talk about the baby as a person. <laughs> Rather than a ferret? Yes. Well, I mean ferret. Or inanimate object that you have to do things to. Like a lot right. of the time... Um, oh, isn't it weird when books and, and websites refer to baby? Yes. Put baby in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas you've talked about Nobody babies... Nobody puts baby in the corner. <laughs> Apparently that's the medical line. <laughs> you've talked about babies having personalities and responding to things that... I did not know that when I was pregnant. <laughs> I thought that puppies had more personality than babies. I just didn't live in a tribal situation where other people had had babies yet. Mm, and, yeah. and I think that's really important. You, you sort of chart the evolving development and expression of a baby's personhood, which I think is actually a really important aspect of, of being a parent, is seeing your baby as an individual and responding to them as an individual. And so that I mean, it's very useful to have advice from all sorts of experts, but ultimately it's you and the person that you're, that you're watching turn into a, a fully evolved human being. So I think that was the thing that I really liked. There's a whole section on toddler emotions, yeah. which is awesome. How, how to <laughs> teach them how to name their emotions so that it just it's just one step back from that tantrum that's brewing if they can actually explain to you why they're bursting into tears or why they're feeling bad. And I think it's just really useful for all kids to grow up knowing the difference between, you know, anger and jealousy and resentment and just being too tired and, yeah, I think it's a really useful thing for, for adults too. And, in fact, that the germ of that came from listening to a podcast where a psychologist said that she uh, deals with refugees and people who've been through trauma, but she spends the first two or three sessions working with them about what their names the names for what they're feeling so she can understand what they're feeling because they just say I'm feeling bad and they often just don't have the language for it so I actually got in touch with her um, and that's where that started to create that list of different emotions yeah and again it's like thinking about the person in front of you even if they're only like three foot tall as a person um and 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 that they have emotions which are going to precipitate the tantrum so rather than saying how do you you manage tantrums I think we need to say (laughs) All kids will have tantrums. <laughs> there is no cure for tantrums, but there's there's a way you can head some of them off and there's there's uh, ideas for what to do when they're in one. Are terms like the terrible twos still useful, do you think? If you talk to parents, if someone brings up the, the phrase terrible twos, at least one person will say, what about the terrible threes? <laughs> um, so it does, you know, as Perry said, it kind of depends on, on the child. It's just that whole time when the kid's learning to walk and the next... 18 months, two years, where they're trying to control as much of their environment as they can and be the boss. And some kids win (laughs) and become the boss of the family. Um, But there's a lot of stuff in the book about how to, to you know, keep the balance of uh, the Cold War (laughs) or the Hot War. That's right. And also communicating about important stuff. So you talk about how to talk about death with a toddler. To oh, they about- see news so often, like even in the waiting room at a, or, or at the fish and chip shop, you know, the news might be on. It's terrifying for little kids to see that sort of stuff happening. Yeah. So it's important to know how to help them process that stuff. 
but the big the big life stuff. So kids will often ask you big questions when you're in the supermarket aisle or driving to the swimming pool, and you need to be able to sort of talk about. Yeah, what does dead mean? Yeah, what what's gay? What's masturbation? These are other things that you talk about in your book. They're the big issues, you know, and yeah. they're very hard well, to talk mostly about. Mostly masturbation because they actually start doing it in the car on the way to swimming. <laughs> or in the supermarket aisle. Yeah. I did not teach them that. I don't know where that's come from. So I thought that was all really fantastic and, and oh, very thanks. useful. I think parents, it's parents need to feel that they are the experts on their kids too and that means that they push for treatment or they push you know that you know they know when that's how you develop the the instinct mm. um and so and also just not to feel shy about going to an expert but at least the book gives them a head start it's expensive to go to the gp or it's hard to know whether you need to go to casualty or not in the middle of the night you know and a lot of places have you know online nurse services and that sort of stuff which is great um but sometimes um, I think parents, you just kind of close your eyes and jump often. Um, so I just want to give people the information that they choose to have um, and gather. Kaz, um, there's a section in there on social media. And, yes. um, you know, as part of a broader question, um, you know, what have you noticed changing the most and the fastest? And what, do you've, what have you noticed over this time that's changed the least? Obviously, social media is going to feature in there. Do you want to talk to that for a minute? Well, you know, I am fascinated by the fact that recently the Silicon Valley, the big people of Silicon Valley have come out and said, none of us let our kids use devices until they're passed at least into primary school and often into secondary school. That is incredible to me, that the people who know the most about what digital stuff does to kids' brains... And I think maybe that's a step too far to say never, never. Um, you know, sometimes you need to hand something to a, usually an older kid and say, be quiet for a minute while mummy's, you know, doing this. But that thing of handing something to a little kid and that thing of parents, look, I see parents all the time looking at their screen while their kid's looking at them and people talking on a phone to someone else and their kids listening and that's when your kid as a baby a tiny baby right up through the toddler years is learning how to communicate and there's going to be there will be a reckoning for the kids who are trying to learn how to have a conversation and they're only hearing one side of it and someone's doing it with someone else and I'm not saying that I'm not saying parents should never be on their phone or never look at their phone but again it's one of those buffet things that is there in the book for people to look at and Understand. So there's that part of it. And then there's the part of it which is do you give your kid their own Instagram account and start soliciting clothes from companies for them to wear on it? Entirely up to you, I'd say. Um, but there's that too. Do you, you, I think you, one of the etiquette things I think is you've got to respect it when other parents say, I don't want pictures of my kid online. Um, so that means you can't take a photo of at a birthday party and just post it without... And I think you do have to respect other people's uh, rules about that. Um, I, th- I think you're being a little bit generous and maybe there's even a, a more sinister element there. Jail and, all the parents! <laughs> no, no, I, I certainly not jail all the parents. I, I just think, I think, that, uh, I think that this idea that these social media forums are free is, is completely wrong. And, in fact, we're paying with our attention uh, and, uh, and we're also paying... Uh, you know, we are the products. You know, these companies are all making a lot of money. They're not charging us. Someone is paying them and they're paying them for our attention. And... And, you know, so there's a price to pay and that's in our interactions with each other it's in, and it's in our kind of sense of free will in terms of how we uh, interact with advertising and lots of things like that. I think that's really important because so many people see stuff on Instagram, Facebook and they think it's just a parent sharing something but it's actually commercially driven and one of the things I say in the book is when you go online and look something up it may be that the first 10 hits on your search engine have been paid to be at that top spot and they're trying to sell you something. Or there's this huge thing now on parenting blogs, which I call, uh, you know, the what I reckon stories. And I have seen ones that recommend you take your baby to the beach in a Kmart garden trolley, which would overheat and is not um, safety standard. I've seen people say it's a really good idea to have bunting above your baby's cot, which, of course, is a strangle risk. Um, Recently, uh, last week, I actually contacted a website 
that's for mothers, Australian, and said, you have an article, can you believe this, how to stay fresh down there <laughs> after your baby's born, which recommends that you squirt water up your vagina in the six weeks after birth, which will be before the cervix is closed again and is a huge infection risk. And what? why is someone who just, what I reckon, why is that presented <laughs> as... I, I think there's a, an ocean of, s- of stuff that looks like information and is actually piffle, uh, especially Elle McPherson's powdered <laughs> cordial wellness. It's wellness, I think you'll find, in a powder. <laughs> um, there's the other element of social media, of course, which probably relates to ideas of stigma and judgment and so on. If you're just observing people's curated social media feed, you're just watching them have kids' birthdays and everyone's happy and clean. And, and, and clean. <laughs> yep. No, you don't see a, a somebody posting their kid having a tantrum or, yeah. or, or something like Although that. Although there or are those... niche things. There uh, is actually a whole thing about kids having tantrums, kids having tantrums oh, for reasons that you can't <laughs> fix, like they want to be a penguin or they want to eat the banana with the peel on or... And <laughs> They just people film their kids crying, so it's kind of like everything's there. And Celeste Barber has her send oh, yeah. up of of that kind of world, yeah. but she's smart too. She doesn't use her kids; no. she just takes on that sort of supermodel world. But I think people do forget that that Instagram world is fake. You know that it's not real, even for them. That's not their real life. And often there's so much payment for advertising stuff and talking about stuff. Kaz, we're slowly coming. Well, fast quickly coming to time um so just by way of um bringing us to a close i wonder if you could nominate what have you noticed has been the fastest and most changing thing since the the first editions of these sorts of books um and perhaps what's perhaps stayed constant um over that time oh the constant is worry okay. the constant is parents wanting to do the right thing and you know having that gorgeous will to make things better for their kids. Uh, Kids are healthier now, we know more now, but parents are more worried, I think. Uh, And also with the latest, with this new edition of um, Babies and Toddlers, I think the sleep, the way that babies should sleep has changed, like co-sleeping's not recommended anymore, and things like when to start um, solid food and what it means for allergies. Cough medicine, we all used to stuff our kids full of cough medicine, that's now not a good idea, but that has failed to get through and people are going into chemists and and, you know buying homeopathic cough medicines the stuff that can't work and medical cough medicines that can't work they're not there because they work they're there because people want them and that's like the cosmetics industry something that's good to keep in mind i think you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r in melbourne australia Welcome back to um, Radio Therapy on Triple R with myself, our panel beater, uh, Dr. Sharma, uh, Perry Pardum, and Hawkeye. And it's Hawkeye who's um, spotted a very interesting hashtag um, that's caught a lot of attention over last week. Hawkeye, what's it all about? Uh, didn't take much spotting, really. It kind of found me, uh, as, as I think we've been discussing, is, is how things happen on social media, isn't it? Um, so... People may be aware of this kind of brewing, I think, uh, brewing medical healthcare discussions, kind of activism online on Twitter and elsewhere. I think initially focused largely on uh, on the Me Too movement and some of the lessons uh, out of Me Too for medicine. Um, but so it's, as as has been, I think the uh, the story, particularly in the US, uh, that uh, Me Too and uh, and the response to uh, their president uh, has really activated uh, a number of um, uh, particularly women um, to really, uh, really get involved in a degree of activism and advocacy that they'd not previously been involved with. And over the last couple of weeks, what happened uh, and what sparked this latest uh, latest thing was the National Rifle Association in the US, the uh, the NRA, um, uh, coming out in response to a what, what I think by Australian standards would be considered a fairly bland position paper by the American College of Physicians just a, uh, called Reducing Firearm Injuries and Death in the United States and including a little bit of guidance about talking to uh, talking to families, talking to people about uh, gun safety and that environment and, and the NRA came out and said, uh, said that uh, the doctors should uh, stay in their lane 
uh, and that this was, you know, that what made what made doctors experts in uh, in you know in gun violence uh, and sorry in guns and gun policy. And uh, the response was, I mean, that that clearly is ridiculous. It sounds, uh, you know, to say it out loud sounds just terrible um but the um and the response was incredible um i thought it was wonderful um the way that uh, certainly doctors initially in the u.s and since then worldwide responded and you saw a, a number of you saw quite early on a uh, dr judy uh Malinek, uh writes uh write that um uh, she said, do you have any idea how many bullets I pull out of corpses weekly? She's a forensic pathologist. This isn't just my lane, it's my effing highway. And uh, and a whole, but- a whole bunch of responses like that. Uh, another Dr. Esther Chu, who, if anyone doesn't follow Esther Chu on Twitter, you just have to. She's absolutely wonderful. And uh, she's an emergency medicine uh, physician from... Uh, so Dr. Esther Chu, emergency medicine physician uh, in Oregon. Um, and she said, look, I'm not anti gun i'm anti-bullet holes in my patients and and i think it you know really it really demonstrates uh you know this this idea that you you actually can uh you can advocate for your patients somewhat independent of kind of you know of partisan politics uh uh in uh in certain environments, and the same thing I think has been said in Australia uh, around discussions around kids uh, kids in detention. And Jean Russell, who's a, a developmental general and general paediatric registrar at Starship Children's Hospital in Auckland, um, nicely pulled together um, pulled together both ideas in an article for a great New Zealand uh, online uh, paper called The Spin-Off um, and uh, in in looking at both these ideas and saying that look, 2018 is really forcing doctors to be advocates as well as healers and I think it's a really, really uh, important idea that there's, a, there's actually a whole range of things happening and uh, uh, where we don't kind of have the luxury only to concentrate on this, this one person in front of us I reckon the the advocacy questions um, a cracker, but just before we go to that ad- advocacy, just um, to sort of like package the news story itself. So for those of you at home, if you've got your device handy and you want to look up hashtag it's my lane, that's what we're talking about at the moment. Um, when I'm watching this hashtag Ross roll through my social media feed, the thing that keeps occurring to me is that. There's, the NRA and the doctors aren't in the same conversation. And with, what I mean by that is the NRA see this story and what I think they mean when they say, get out of your lane, they're saying, no, this is a liberty and rights issue and the doctors are responding with, this is a public health issue and they're not talking to each other, like the NRA is not talking about public health and the doctors aren't talking about the the merits or otherwise of considering guns a human right or a, a, a liberty, you know, in the United States context, a liberty issue. You seeing that in the feed? Oh, look, I think you're being very generous to the NRA, and I think the doctors in this discussion have been as well. And certainly in the formal uh, in the formal um, letter that they prepared, they were were that generous, and they said, "Look, we'd love to have a conversation, a range of other things." I think the reality is that the NRA are a paid represent, representative group of the gun industry, and that's uh, and that you can't get past that. Um, that they're not interested in this discussion; they're interested in stopping this discussion. And I think you know a kind of hashtag this is my lane or this is our lane has has you know kind of forced a discussion they, they're not having that discussion they've they've continued kind of throwing a few barbs but for the most part have retreated because the last thing they want to do is 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 maintain this this as a news story hmm. and insofar as that point about the nra versus doctors having these kind of parallel conversations about slightly different things if anything the nra has a long history of trying to suppress doctors uh, talking even specifically about the public health uh, side of yeah. things uh, so they've lobbied hard for uh, for the cdc to be silenced and uh, doing more research into the impact of gun violence uh so if anything uh, i really think it's the nra who has not kind of stayed in their lane yeah doctors have i think one of the great things that i think uh, the u.s doctors have done is specifically talk about it from perspective of it being a, a health issue and uh, that's uh, that's not politicizing it that's uh, that's re- that's a reality of the problem it couldn't more be a public health issue the um the the compare contrast and I think it came up in the spin off um, article uh, Hawkeye it was like w- what's our point of reference for doctors as advocates here um, the easy one to go to is doctors of advocates around smoking 
right? And talking about that as an issue and we, and we respond to that. But then we think about doc- doctors as advocates for, say, children on Nauru. Um, and, you know, so obviously what we... And we've had it on the show. We've been talking about that as a mental health issue for, for, um, uh, for children. Whereas one side of the argument is talking about it still as sovereign borders issue and those conversations aren't meeting. you seeing that conversation as relevant to thinking about this particular one? I mean, I think, you know, a poli- any policy that's, uh, you know, any policy where that, that is measured in the lives, you know, in, or deaths of, of children is a bad one, mm-hmm. you know, and I think we can contribute we can contribute that, you know, and uh, and that, you know, there is a discussion around immigration, around borders and whatever else. But, you know, you don't get to you don't get to adopt a policy that addresses addresses one one idea at the cost of human lives and then say, but, you know, but it's achieving that, you know, and uh, that there's something there's something terrible about you know, about kind of weighing those things together. Um, the the response from a lot of doctors here are, are these incredible photos of their uh, the pants of their scrubs after dealing with a gunshot victim um, uh, a room in a hospital uh, once the victim had been the the dead victim had been wheeled out and kind of the debris that's left on a trauma room floor um, it's been uh, and over the last few days it's been internationalized and quite a few of the US authors have asked have asked their colleagues overseas to weigh in and and you see you see Australian doctors very experienced surgeons saying oh I've dealt with one or two gunshot wounds in my life. Um, and you know, and no and one has been accidents of hunting or something like that. Yeah. Absolutely, and you know, saying that you know, look, we're we're not talking about fundamentally different people here. We're talking about people who don't have guns in their yeah. hands. I couldn't help but notice, though, at the moment, um, um, and people at home might want to take a look at it. The American College of Surgeons have currently got a campaign at the moment, um, and it's called Stop the Bleed. And Stop the Bleed is a public education program about how to deal with traumatic bleeding, i.e., gunshots. And this is being rolled out in high schools. So the NRA aren't completely, uh, you know, they, they're evil, but they're not completely stupid because the one thing they didn't do was tell nurses to stay in their lane, and you know, which is just a just a sign that you know they know that nurses are organised in a way that doctors aren't. So doctors need to start organising, need to start advocating even better than we have. Great conversation, guys. That brings us to time um, for radiotherapy again. Um, a big thanks to our special guest, uh, Kaz Cook, who was in to talk her, talk about a book, uh, Babies and Toddlers. A big thanks to um, the panel, Perry Pardum, Hawkeye and uh, Dr Sharma. A uh, shout-out to Lady Gaga, who some of you will have seen on our Facebook promos, was going to be in to talk to us, but she's been a bit crook and couldn't make it in. So get well soon, uh, Lady Gaga. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.